Well, occasionally in our lives, it's good to uh, it's good to 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 douse some uh, some water on perhaps some inner passions in our lives, some some kind of some kind of desire, some things we might be excited about. Sometimes it's good to douse a little water on on those kinds of things. Uh, I'm thinking right now, today the uh, the NFL season starts. You know, this week starts today. The Vikings begin their their, their journey into the 2018 season. And if you're a Vikings fan, even if you're not a Vikings fan, you know that instinctively we go into protection mode. You know, we're going to protect our hearts this year. We're not going to fall for it like we did last year. There's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And we felt that sickness too many times in our lives here in Minnesota, cheering for, uh, for our, our, our Minnesota Vikings. And so we know that we need to be reserved. We need to like douse a little fire on that passion, that excitement, that eagerness. If we don't, there could be some postseason depression, uh, some weight gain come this winter, some dark thoughts, some rash vows to never watch another game that we make before the Lord, and then we've got to deal with that later. Uh, we have to be reserved. And then if we, if we in love, we see a naive young youth who is overly passionate and excited for the Minnesota Vikings season, we come alongside them, put our, shoulder, put our arm around them, and tell them, don't, don't get too excited yet. I've been down that road. You know, they're probably going to leave you frustrated. That is the life of a Minnesota Vikings fan. And even if you're not a fan, you know that that's true. You hear enough about it. Don't get too excited. We douse water on certain things. And that can be good and that can be bad. And today the text, the picture that, that we have to work with from the text today is this idea of dousing water on a fire. It's just simply a, this idea of pouring water on a fire. But it's not a good thing. It's actually the, the fire representing being the Holy Spirit. And to douse water on that fire would be just a, a, a terrible thing to do. And we get instruction, clear instruction, to don't quench the Spirit. So that's the title of the sermon today is just Don't Quench the Spirit. It comes right out of the text that we're going to look at today. Uh, some fires we do not want to douse out, and this is one of them. There are three sins, I think, against the Holy Spirit that Christians need to be aware of. I'm talking about people who have a living faith in Jesus Christ, who are hoping in him today, are holding on to, to Christ, trusting in him alone. People who aren't trusting in their good works, who love Jesus, are seeking to follow him. There's three sins that is talked about explicitly in the, in the New Testament uh, and, and the Old Testament too that we should be aware of. Uh, one of them, Pastor Brett actually talked about um, back when he preached on Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira are the main characters in that story. And the sin there is lying to the Spirit. We see the sin of lying to the Spirit. That's one sin that just should be on our radar as Christians. Um, another one would be um, grieving the Spirit, which is found all throughout the text, in, all throughout your, your Bible. Grieving the Spirit would be another one that should be on our radar. And then the third one is quenching the Spirit, which is what we're going to look at today, this idea of quenching the Spirit. So let's go there. Um, grab your Bible. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll have some verses on the screen too, but at least for this first one, it's probably good to see it yourself. <clears throat> if you need a Bible this morning, by the way, just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Um, one of the ushers can grab you a Bible for you and, and get it to you. So just put your hand up in the air. We'll get it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 19 through 22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. That's it. Those are, our, those are our verses today. Those verses are meant to be together, meant to be read together, meant to be held together. So it's my attempt to connect these dots for you today, these verses for you today. What we're doing here is we're jumping into <clears throat> the end of Paul's letter. So at the very end of 1 Thessalonians, and we hit this section here, the few verses before it, are kind of this rapid-fire succession of 
commands, instructions, comments, things that Paul wants to, to get out just before he signs off on this letter. The thing that holds them together is that they all come, these, all these commands come out of this initial command where he tells the Thessalonians to encourage one another and to build each other up just as you are doing. That comes from verse 11 of chapter 5. And then he just goes on and encourages them and builds them up. He's just doing what he just said from verse 11. <clears throat> this week, a lot of us might have sent our kids off to school, right? Either you got them on the bus or you got them to the door, to the classroom, whatever it might be. This is the time of year we're sending kids off to school. And it, there's a chance, if your children are smaller, that you had some, just some final last-minute instructions for them just before you go wherever you've got to go, like, Remember to eat your lunch, you know, quickly this time, or, or something else. And it's quick, it doesn't have much explanation, but it's not, like, less important. It's still actually really important kind of information. That's kind of what we have here, is it's quick, it's little snapshot commands, it's, little, it's, it's some quick teaching on something, but Paul doesn't really fill it out. It doesn't mean it's not important, it's just a quick few verses. So that's where we're at, and Paul has some particular instruction for the Thessalonians concerning the Holy Spirit. And here it is. This is the, the, uh, the, the main point that he wants to make here is simply this. Do not put out the fire of the Holy Spirit in your life or in your church. Do not put out the fire of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't quench the Spirit. It's a metaphor. It's not unlike Paul or others to use metaphors to describe the Spirit. He does it in Titus 3 when he um, calls the Spirit water, a water that regenerates, a water that, that brings us into to, to a rebirth or a new relationship with God. Uh, elsewhere in John 3, the Spirit is a wind that blows. And so here we have the Spirit is a fire that burns. Matthew 3, John the Baptist talks about it in Matthew 3 when he when he tells, uh, tells the people that um, the Spirit will come as fire and it will burn up sin. That's going to be the effect of it. It's going to burn up sin. Acts 2, again, that's, that's where it happens again, where we see the Spirit as fire again. Um, Brett pe- preached about that uh, several weeks ago as well. And there you have what appeared as tongues of fire over the people who were praying and waiting for um, the Spirit to fall. And in 2 Timothy, a text that we'll come to later in the sermon today, um, Timothy just reminds, or Paul reminds Timothy to fan into flame. Fan into flame the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given to you. So, the Spirit as fire is a common metaphor. It's used, it's a good metaphor, despite some of the songs that have been written about it. Um, can overdo it a little bit or misunderstand it, but it is a biblical metaphor. It is a good metaphor. It's one that Paul uses here. So we're going to go ahead and, and kind of enter into it today. And the basic instruction here again is don't quench, don't extinguish the fire of the Spirit. And let, I mean, we just got to think about that for a second. That is amazing, isn't it? That God has given us as his children ability, evidently, to quench his Spirit, his fire in our lives. It's, it's kind of profound, that the Holy Spirit would subject himself, God the Spirit would subject himself in such a way that we can put him out. God does that. That is an amazing thought to, 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 to ponder and to think about it for a little while. As I did that, I, I thought, well, I mean, in some ways that's, that is absolutely profound. It is amazing. But it kind of is consistent with what we know about God. I mean, God has always operated with his people in a, in a, in a loving relationship kind of way. He's, he's never been a bully who comes in and like pounces on us and forces himself or forces us to do things for him. That's not the kind of God he's ever been characterized with his people um, to where we have no control anymore. We're just like forced to do things that God tells us to do. Don't see that. We're not little mindless minions who run around doing his bidding. That's not, that's not it. We have this love relationship with God, and so he constantly does what? He invites us to trust him. He invites us to love him. He, he invites us to know him better. He's, it's an invitation into relationship, and our affections get stirred up, our trust gets stirred up, and, and we just see that that 
basic relationship principle must be in the background here because here he's given us, his children, his people, his own people, the ability in this relationship to quench his spirit, to snuff it out. And, and get me, I don't think he's talking, we'll talk about what this means, but it's not, it's not salvation. It's not like you're going to lose your, your place with God. It's something else that Paul is talking about when it comes, comes to quenching the spirit. So I'm not talking about losing your place in Christ. That's, that's there. If your faith is in Christ and it's real, then, then that's there. This is a little bit different. But it is sobering nonetheless, and it should weigh on us. It should land on us as something that, let's think about that for a little bit before we move on to the next verse in our Bible. Don't quench the Spirit. So there you have it. There's the broad statement. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. And then he kind of narrows it down in the next verse into what he means for the Thessalonians. How might they be quenching the Spirit? The answer by despising prophecies, or despising the gift of prophecy in their church. Verse 20, take a look, says, do not despise prophecies. This is, these are connected commands. These are meant to be read together. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Specifically, this is a way that you can quench the spirit. And one of the gifts of the spirit, we know this, is the gift of prophecy. There's several places in the Bible, where you can see different gifts of the Spirit mentioned, things like teaching or evangelism or, or mercy um, or tongues or prophecy and so on. There's a, there's a, there's a bunch of them in the New Testament. Um, and I will just say, so Brett mentioned last week, if you were here last week, um, we're going to do a sermon series on the gifts of the Spirit, either this fall or this winter. So I don't want to steal his thunder, but we're talking about prophecy here, so I feel like we've got to stop and let's talk about prophecy a little bit. Um, maybe it won't cover every detail that you want to hear this morning. Please know we're going to preach through all the gifts of the Spirit and, and try to gain some more clarity as a church there. But a few comments about prophecy uh, in order to keep going with the text here this morning. Before we go into defining it, <clears throat> or what's going on here, just as a church, I think it's probably helpful to remind you, to let you know, that as elders, the leadership of this church actually believes that all the gifts are active, are actively given by God today, that there's not certain ones that aren't given anymore. All the gifts are are relevant. We embrace all the gifts here at Christ Redeemer Church. Um, And it's on our—you can go to our website and even see that. The Elder Affirmation of Faith is that document. You go on there, you click on it, you read it, and you'll see right there what we have. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, I should go look at that. But, like, Dory the fish, right? I mean, you're going to forget in, like, four minutes that you're going to go look at that Elder Affirmation of Faith online. Plus, with a title like that, it doesn't really stick in the brain. So I'm going to put— the one little section of the Elder Affirmation of Faith on the screen, and I want to just read it to you. So you can see kind of, this is the leadership of your church. This is where we're at with it all, um, with the gifts of the Spirit, including prophecy. Here it is. We believe that the newness of this era, talking about the church age, the age we're living in right now, um, is marked by the unprecedented mission of the Spirit to glorify the crucified and risen Christ. He does this by giving the disciples of Jesus greater power to preach the gospel of the glory of Christ and by opening up the hearts of hearers that they might see Christ and believe. By revealing the beauty of Christ in his word and transforming his people from glory to glory. And here it is. By manifesting himself in spiritual gifts, being sovereignly free to dispense as he wills all the gifts of the of 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. So there it is. Again, your elders joyfully and wholeheartedly embrace that statement. We, we love it, um, and we believe prophecy, like any of the gifts of the Spirit, would be for the building up of the church. That's the goal. That's the aim of prophecy, or any gift. 1 Corinthians 14 says this, verses 1 through 3, This is Paul talking. He says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For, some instruction here, one who speaks in a tongue 
speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people, here it is again, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So that's, that, that's the leadership of your church, just so you know. Like that's, that's our desire. We might not know exactly how to work all of that stuff out. Um, growing, we're praying for clarity on that. We're, we want to grow in it. We also know it's a sensitive issue, and we've got we to practice discernment and wisdom and seek the Lord in some of that. So, um, but that's the, that's the position. Now, you don't have to embrace that position to be a member here. It's not required. We've actually, um, there's several issues that the elders would affirm that we wouldn't necessarily say members have to affirm. Doesn't, seem, doesn't mean we can't have fellowship. Doesn't mean we can't be in a church together. So just know there's room there to see it differently. Uh, some people don't see that all the gifts are active anymore. They would say some of those gifts have actually ceased. And the word for that is cessationism. And just say certain gifts aren't actually practiced anymore. Um, and that is a, 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 a widely held view. You know, it, that's out there. It's, it's um, very popular. So, and you could be here and you could, you could be of that position and that shouldn't hinder our fellowship. I mean, there's, there's lots of things that we can come together on. Um, that said, just know, like, because of the leadership here, um, you know, don't try to make disciples of your view in that particular area just because... They're going to hear something different from the pulpit every, not every week, but when we do talk about the gifts, they're going to hear something different. So we're striving for unity. That's the big thing in our membership. Our big thing in our church is we do strive for unity given the, the certain things we've labeled out or listed out in terms of what we believe. We strive for unity in those things. And even where we don't see things the same way, there's a bigger issue here of unity. We want to be a unified church. And, and so keep that in mind as you discuss these kinds of things. Keep it in mind as you have conversation where you're, you're, you know, you're, you're in an opportunity to talk a little bit about what you believe and it's a little bit different than the elders. It's okay. I mean, don't want to, no silencing or anything, but just be mindful of, of the church and of the leadership and the direction that, that we want to go. So I trust the Spirit there. I really just trust the Holy Spirit in you to know how to do that in a way that's not divisive and argumentative and all of those things. And I don't know of anybody who's done that. I don't know of anybody who's doing that, just so you know. There's nobody, nothing like that. But it's worth saying to preserve the unity of our church, to know that can become argumentative, divisive kinds of, kind of issue if we're not vigilant to walk in humility, walk in the Spirit, and recognize the church that you're in, the leadership of it. So just be mindful of those things. I trust that the, the Lord will lead all of us in it well. So, all of that said, what is the gift of prophecy? What is this thing? Because people have different definitions of it. Well, I'll start with what prophecy is not. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's, it's not these things. Prophecy is, is not just powerful preaching. Powerful preaching can be very effective. It is very effective, but we wouldn't call that prophecy. That's different. Um, Prophecy is not just a word of encouragement to somebody. That can be very good. That can be the Spirit can lead you to, to bring encouragement to somebody, but we're not going to call that prophecy. Um, uh, it is also, it does not start with, and you'll be relieved to hear this, it does not start with, thus saith the Lord. Okay? It's the, it, that, it, maybe you've been around churches that that's what it is. We're not saying that. It's not Scripture. I can quote Scripture. I can come up and read the Bible openly. That's now God has, there's prophecy in his word, you know, he's given prophetic word. This is a prophetic word in that it's a revelation from God, of course. But we're not saying that that's the gift of prophecy now given to the church. That's still different. Um, and I will say genuine prophecy never disagrees with this. Like, that's important to, to clarify. It's not, it's not the Bible, but it won't disagree with the Bible either. So, Wayne Grudem has a definition of prophecy that we've liked, we've enjoyed, we've appreciated his theology. We teach a class based on some of the stuff that he's written, and it's a good, um, good definition, simple. Prophecy is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. It's one definition, telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Um, Sam Storms has another definition that's helpful, kind of similar. He just says it's the human report 
of a divine revelation. Human report of a divine revelation. And both these guys emphasize the fact that, first, it's, it's, um, it's spontaneous, and they emphasize the fact that it's, it's human words spoken out of a human personality. So you don't go into a trance, you know, and like this kind of—it's it's not meant to be just this weird, crazy thing. It is a human report spoken through a person with a normal personality and his normal voice or her normal voice. That's what it is. It's the speaking forth in human words that some, of something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Um, so it's not rehearsed, again, it's not planned, it is spontaneous, it is from the Lord. And one other clarifying point about this, prophecy is a, is a word given to a particular person or, a, or, a, or maybe a, a group of people. It's a particular word for a particular person or group for a particular time. That's what prophecy is. Scripture is different. Scripture is God's revelation to all people, all the time, never changes. So those are, those are different, again. Um, there's, a, there's a relatively famous example of what this might look like, and I, I've decided to go ahead and read it this morning, just to, again, give a, a little bit more of a clear picture of what we're thinking prophecy might look like here. This is from Charles Spurgeon's autobiography. Uh, Charles Spurgeon lived from 1834 to 1892. Great preacher. He says this in his autobiography. He says, While preaching in the hall, on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, There is a man sitting here, there, who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence, and there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. Can you imagine that? Well, a city missionary, when going his rounds, met with this man, and seeing that he was reading one of my sermons, he asked the question, Do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Uh... Yes, replied the man. I have every reason to know him. I've been to hear him. And under his preaching, by God's grace, I became a new creature in Christ Jesus. Shall I tell you how it happened? I went to the music hall. I took my seat in the middle of the place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me, and in his sermon he pointed to me. And he told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that. But he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day, and the four pence was just the profit. But how he should know that, I could not tell. And then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I was shut up, so I shut up my uh, shop the next Sunday. And at first I was afraid to go again and hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards, I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. And then Spurgeon adds this comment at the end of it. He says, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the person's have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man that told me all things that I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul, or else he would not have, been, would not have described me so exactly. So that's, that's a picture of, of a prophetic word. Divine revelation given by God for a particular person that has an effect that completely accords with Scripture. And what other explanation can you give except that God just gave this in this moment? So that is, um, again, that's a picture of what we mean when we say the gift of prophecy. And by the way, that accords really well with 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-four to 25, where Paul says this. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters in, like a shoe shop guy, he is convicted by all, He's called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. 
And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So just, just trying to give some clarity as to what we're talking about. More could be said about the gift of prophecy. Um, and we're going to have to wait and, and hit that a little bit more later because we're going to keep on moving this morning. Um, but that's, that's a picture of what we're talking about there. Now, <clears throat> Paul gives that instruction. We don't know exactly why he needed to instruct the Thessalonians to not despise prophecy. Commentators are lists are pretty similar in this regard. Things like perhaps the gift of prophecy was being misused, or maybe it was being abused in some way. That was kind of like in Corinthians that you see, if you read through the First Corinthians. Um, it could be that people were being very ecstatic in how they were doing the whole prophecy thing, like become this other person and ecstatic nature that becomes kind of basically man-focused instead of God-focused and becomes confusing for people. It could have been something like that. It's very possible here. Um, it could be that it was somebody with, with character that you just don't trust. You know, it could be someone's got a, a prophetic word, and they, you're like, I know that person. I don't, <laughs> really? God's speaking through? I just saw him yesterday. You know, like, it could be that you just know this person, and their character is questionable, and, and that's confusing to a church. Now God's speaking prophetically through this person? So it could have been any one of those situations. We don't really know for sure. But whatever it was, the temptation was to stop. Like, no more prophecy. We're done with this gift. There's no place for it here. It's, too many, it's, it's, it's just too problematic. <clears throat> but man, Paul doesn't say it. He, doesn't, he just doesn't say that. He, just, he brings instruction, just like he did with the Corinthians. He brings instruction on how the gift should be used. Because the gifts of God are good. They're always good, whether we abuse them or use them rightly. And beyond spiritual gifts, all the gifts that God gives us are good that we can misuse in so many ways. Think of, think of food or leisure or sex or, or money or so on. Every gift that God gives, we have the potential to abuse. And I would say including any of the gifts of the Spirit, including um, prophecy. So there's something similar there um, that, that really does make sense. So we want to learn how to use the gifts well, essentially. On this point, like personally, like my story intersects here big time. And I know some of you, actually maybe quite a few of you, um, kind of intersect, your story intersects in similar ways as mine. Because I grew up in full-blown charismatic churches, okay? And if you had that experience, you know what I'm talking about. You, you see, it, it can be a great experience, by the way, but at least for me, I just, I saw plenty of the whole conjured up emotion thing, I saw uh, lots of situations where pastors were pressuring people to speak in tongues or to fall over. Um, lots of prophecies that didn't seem to really make sense or tongues being spoken out kind of randomly. And you're like, I don't know what that was. And no one says anything about it. And you just keep, you just kind of carry on. I grew up in that. I mean, I just know it really, really well. I thought it was normal for a long time. And, uh, learned that it, it was a particular kind of churches that we were in. And a lot of good things. I'm not going to bash it. It was a lot of good stuff. But, but when it came to the Holy Spirit, it was amazing how quickly things could kind of get derailed. Or maybe what God was wanting to do gets derailed in some way uh, because of the way it's being carried out. And what happened for me personally, and maybe for you, is that I, in my head, I still believed in the gifts. Um, but, in, but slowly but surely, like, I was very happy to never, ever see them <laughs> used again. Like, I'm perfectly content for those gifts to stay out there with those people. And I'll believe it, and I'll say amen to something, but I don't know what. And in action, in the kind of life that I want to live, I don't, I don't care about those gifts. I don't want to see them used. I'm perfectly happy to, to not be in churches that um, promote those gifts or anything like that. And got very, very comfortable with that. Yet still held on to the belief that the gifts are given. I just don't know where, kind of thing. And that's even after going to Moody Bible Institute, which is a, a very cessationist school. And I still could not. I was, the, I was a prime candidate to be a convert. <laughs> and I couldn't see it in the Bible. I just could never see a real clear kind of biblical argument from the text that these gifts have ceased. And so I became what's called a functional cessationist or somebody who is open to the gifts yet 
doubtful of them. People say open but cautious. I think it's more like open but doubtful. At least it was for me. Um, so that was kind of my journey. It still is my journey. But I will say, in the last year and a half, two years, uh, the Lord has done just some good work in, in my life, in my heart, going back to the text, thinking about things. I mentioned Sam Storm's definition. He's written some really helpful stuff that like, spoke to my life, my situation that I grew up in, um, that, uh, that has been good for me, good for my heart, good for me to think about, reopening some of these um, issues in my life um, to where I, I, I feel, along with, I would say, Paul, that that's just, it's just not a good position to be in to say, yeah, I'm, I'm open to the gifts, but I don't actually ever want to see them or be a part of them <laughs> or be a, in a church that's a part of them. Um, I think Paul would have a problem with that. I think he does here in Thessalonians. And little by little, the Lord has kind of been working in me to kind of bring me full circle as a different person in a lot of ways, but full circle in the sense of I actually, I actually pray for the gifts. You know, I actually ask God for the gift of prophecy. I actually ask God for more of the gifts to be used here in our church. I ask God for wisdom and how to shepherd people in the gifts. So not haven't seen any profound change, but my inner disposition has changed big time to where like, okay, I'm going to at least in my heart, at least in my prayers, I'm going to come before the Lord and, and pray differently than I prayed. I'm going to acknowledge um, the quenching that I have, I've placed on him in saying um, or approaching this, this gift and the gifts of the Spirit the way I have. So that's been my personal journey. It might be a little bit of your journey in some ways, um, it's been good, and I just do see the grace of God in, in all of that for, for me, and I'm, I'm eager. I'm excited for, for all of God's gifts uh, to be used. I don't know that he'll give me the gift of prophecy. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to give any of us the gift of prophecy, but I know that Paul instructs us to ask for it and to desire it, and so I'm going to try to desire it, you know, as much as I can. So continuing on... Um, in our text, he says, don't despise prophecies, but then he gives more instruction concerning prophecies. He says, but test everything, right? Verse, um, verse 21, but test everything. Hold on to that. There's five imperatives. This is one of the imperatives. Test everything. He doesn't give instruction as to what that looks like, but thankfully we have all of the scripture here in front of us, and so we have some ways that we know that a gift like prophecy could be tested. One would be just that somebody in your church, somebody in this family of God, has been given the gift of discernment. All right, 1 Corinthians 12.10 talks about the gift of discernment. Well, that person, whatever, however that person sees a prophetic word being uh, um, spoken, chances are you're going to want to hear that person who's got the gift of discernment. It's going to be very helpful in testing that word that was spoken. You can, uh, you can test the word. Number two, you could test the word against the apostles' teaching. That's what Second Thessalonians, so the next book over, says in chapter 2. Paul says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So hold on to these teachings. Hold on to the word that we taught you. Thessalonians. That's this right, for us. That, that's, that's his word right here. The apostles teaching the prophets, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of it. We hold on to that. So, if you're going to test prophecies, it makes sense that you read your Bible. Like you actually know what this says. Otherwise, you're going to have a hard time testing things up against it. So we're in the word. We're learning the word. We're studying the word. We're memorizing the word. Um, we're going to a Sunday class about the word, right? Like, we do these things so that it can be tested. Number three, another way that you can test a prophetic word would be um, to, from 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty nine, would be just to let others in general, certain people, judge the word. It, said, it says, let two, or th- let two or three prophets speak, and then let the others weigh what was said. So... Let them weigh it. Let it be talked about. It's open to discussion. That, in that way, it's very different than Scripture. We don't discuss whether or not Scripture is real or true or whatever. Like, that's very different. A prophetic word that might be spoken in, a, in some kind of setting or situation, you weigh it. You discern it. It could be wrong. 
It could be just human error. It could be from Satan. It could be, you just don't know. And so you weigh it, you look at it, you discuss it. That's the instruction, I think, for the Thessalonians. By the way, I know that in our church, this is not a gift that we see being used on a regular basis. I, I, I don't know of it being used at all. I'm not saying it doesn't. So I, I recognize <laughs> that what I'm talking about can seem strange, but it's not strange to the Thessalonians. Like, this is the world that they lived in, and we're going to look at it and, and really take it seriously. This is, this is where they're at, and we, we will learn from it, even if it's not something we're engaging with on a, on a regular basis here at Christ Redeemer Church. So I know it can feel a little strange, but here we are. That's where the Bible takes you sometimes. Strange places, right? You can go to funny places. Um, so test everything, and then verse—it uh, continues on there. That verse continues, and he says, um, hold fast to what is good. In other words, prophecy that has been has passed the test, hold on to it. Like, that's a gift from God. That was a gift from God to you. Be encouraged by it. Don't just throw it to the corner. Don't forget about it. Be encouraged by it. Hold on to it. This was good for you. This is, um, I think, modeled in 1 Timothy 1, when Paul says this to Timothy in verse 18. He says to Timothy, this, I, this charge that I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, them being the prophecies made about you, by them you may wage the good warfare. So Timothy is like a soldier and there's opposition, and he's trying to shepherd this church. And one of the things that can help encourage him and lift him up and bless him would be the prophetic words that were given to him. And, and that's, the, that's a picture of receiving them and holding fast to them. Verse 22, moving along. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Again, we're still right here in the middle of, of this prophetic, this conversation about prophecy abstain from every form of evil, I take to mean simply that any prophecy that has not passed the test, you have nothing to do with. Like, don't hold on to that. Stay away from it. Abstain from it. It's the same word that's also talked about uh, in terms of sexual immorality earlier in the letter. Abstain from it. Like, just have nothing to do with that. And that can seem like, why do you have to say that, Paul? Obviously, if it didn't pass the test, who's going to hold on to it? Well, what if it was a prophecy you liked? <laughs> you're going to be a, you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be famous, and and you're going to marry that person right there. And you're like, oh, this is I like this prophecy. If it didn't pass the test, then it might be a little bit. You might need that instruction. Abstain from it. That's not a word that you hold on to here. And so I think Paul's just being pastoral. He's thinking about the situations that they could that could be rising up, and he's saying. Don't pass the test. Let it go. Move, move past it. So that's what's going on here in 1 Thessalonians. The quenching of the Spirit for them had, pri- had to do primarily with this idea of rejecting the gift of prophecy for, you know, various reasons. And, and I think on some level that can basically just land on us and say, okay, gifts of the Spirit, including prophecy, but other, other gifts of the Spirit. Um, what does that mean for us in our current situation. One thing I, I, I think we can take from that is taking seriously Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14, 39, where he just says this, even after the Corinthian mess of the gifts of the Spirit, he says this, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. He doesn't say, don't worry about prophecy, just, just uh, you know, do something else with your time. He just says, earnestly desire to prophesy. And so in that way, I think that's, that's a way for us to combat the, the quenching of the Spirit. Should I switch mics, Sam? Everyone's shaking. Everyone's shaking when that happens, and I, I feel bad about that. So let me—I'll um, grab this one. But I did, I did mention early on that the first command there is very broadly said, um, do not quench the Spirit. There's a broad statement there. Do not quench the Spirit. And there's other ways that we can quench the Spirit, I think, than besides prophecy. And if you are of the cessationist camp, you're glad that I said that finally. There are, this, this command can mean other things too, Levi. Just don't forget about us. Um, it can mean other things to quench the Spirit. It's not simply despising prophecy. Just that, that was their situation. 
Um, there's lists that we can make about ways we can quench the Spirit. I don't know that it could be a long list of things. I've, I've come across, I've thought of three or come across three that I think are helpful to, for us to be on our radars um, in our context here of ways that we can quench the Spirit, other ways that we might quench the Spirit. One is that we can quench the Spirit simply by ignoring him, like just refusing to think about him, refusing to acknowledge his existence. We just don't actually think about the Spirit. And, and, and we do this for a, a variety of reasons. It could be just ignorance or we just don't talk about it much or something like that. Um, it can be fear. It could just be a fear-based sort of like, I just don't think about the Spirit because it's weird and fearful and it makes me feel like I might lose control of my life if <laughs> I actually open myself up to the fact that he's right here and he's a person and he speaks to me. And it can be, it can be any number of reasons, but we do tend to ignore the Holy Spirit here in, uh, in our culture. Um, we do it in our life groups. I've seen it in our own life groups. I've seen it in my life group where, uh, where I've not led in ways that would be better for me to lead in that we have a decision to make or something we've got to figure out as a life group. And, you know, all we do is spend time talking about it, but we actually never stop and pray. We never actually stop and recognize the Spirit's here. Maybe the Spirit will give us guidance, and, and maybe we need that right now. Um, so it, it happens in any, in, at any time where we just ignore the Spirit's presence in our lives. So number two, another way that I think we can quench the Spirit is that we, um, we don't think of him as a real person. So think Star Wars. Like he's a force. It's a neuter force out there. And we don't even know. We call it it half the time because we don't know what to call him. And, and he's just this, this force or this, we've got to plug ourselves into the force and get some strength for whatever and then move on in our day. Or it, he's not, he, he lacks personality all of a sudden. He doesn't even get a personal pronoun anymore. He's just an it. I think we quench the spirit when we do that because we fail to recognize all the qualities that come with a person who speaks and communicates and helps and loves and, and is actively engaged moment by moment with us. And so uh, in those ways, we can quench the spirit, which I do occasionally at times myself. I, I quench the spirit in different ways um, all the time. And so um, we're, all, we're all in the same boat there. Uh, and then thirdly, the last thing I've, I've thought about more so recently, as, more so as a worship pastor here, um, thinking about quenching the, quenching the spirit, I've been thinking about the importance of um, physical posture and emotion in worship. I think we can quench the spirit when we suppress our emotions before God or to God. Um, reading through the Psalms, looking at the Psalms, when I see a phys- any time I see a physical expression of worship, um, it is usually singing which we sing. It's great. I know not everybody maybe sings with the same enthusiasm, but we come together and we sing. Um, Hands are raised in the Psalms. We're commanded to raise our hands. Even in the New Testament, it talks about praying with hands raised, um, clapping with our hands, kneeling or bowing down before the Lord. Like, Just thinking about physical expressions of worship. We have David who dances before the Lord in the street, um, to the point where his wife is embarrassed about it, about the whole thing. But there he is. And so I'm just kind of like letting that, I'm trying to take that in. Okay, these are, the, these are the physical descriptions of worship. So what we don't see, what I don't see, is what comes so naturally for me and maybe for you, is I come to a service, I listen to music, I stick my hands in my pockets, and I wait for the sermon to start. And I might sing, but I'm going to spend a lot of time looking around the room and just kind of, looking at other people. That's the only descri- I don't see that description anywhere. I'm not saying worship can't happen when your hands are in your pocket. Don't hear me saying that. I'm not really going that far. I'm just kind of like, I'm just saying, well, it's worth questioning it. Our hands just sitting here or like, or, or like this and refusing to sing all morning. I don't see that anywhere. So thinking about this, reflecting on it, as your pastor thinking about it, how do I shepherd people in this? Um, this description that I see on a regular basis, not by everybody, and I'm certainly that person sometimes, but um, how, do I, how do we shepherd? How do we grow in this, these kinds of things? And, and trying to take seriously 
what, uh, the way the Bible describes worship. I think we can quench him when we suppress our emotions. I think we can quench him when we think our bodies should not be a part of the worship process at all. Think of singing a song like uh, How Great Thou Art or something. Or, or if you don't like that song, pick a song that, that you really like that goes vertical. It's extolling, extolling the praises of God. We're, we're, we're just thinking about Jesus, thinking about God. And you feel just a little bit of something inside of you. Just, just a tiny little bit. And, and part of you kind of just wants to express something physically, but uh, whether it's closing your eyes, as simple as closing your eyes, maybe it's raising your hands, maybe it's just some kind of uh, appropriate movement um, here in a congregation like this, maybe it's just a smile on your face, whatever it could be, but you feel it, but then you kind of like push that down because variety of reasons. You might just be afraid of what someone might think of you. You might sort of not be comfortable with expressing emotions, stuff like that. Um, any one of those things could be in play. Or you've convinced yourself that you're not an emotional person. And if you felt more in our worship time, then I would actually express more. But I wonder, I wonder if there are times in our lives when we need our bodies to lead our minds into worship, right? We, 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 we say that that's okay when we're thinking of, well, exercise kind of helps you get started in your day or something like that. But when we come to worship, sometimes your body needs to lead, I think, needs to lead your mind into worship. It, I do that um, myself. There's times I don't feel, there's times when I'm raising my hands, not because I feel anything or because I feel something, it's because I feel nothing. I'm like, oh, Lord, help me to, help me to, this to go deeper in me. I'm distracted or whatever. Um, it's, it's part of just looking at worship and saying, I, I really do want to engage with God on an, on an emotional level, on an emotional way, and my body can help me do that. Um, and I, I think there's something to it. I just think there's a little bit of something to, uh, to that that we have in, um, especially in the Psalms with the descriptions of worship. So please feel free. I know... We come from different backgrounds and, and all that stuff, but please feel free. I, I, hear me. I'm encouraging you to, to, as the Lord stirs up your affections, the Holy Spirit stirs up your affection, to press into that. Like, let worship. Worship him. Don't, don't, don't feel like that's unallowed or, or, or can't be physical or emotional in any way. It's not true. And the fact is, we're all emotional people. You can say you're not. Say I'm born and bred Minnesotan, you know, it's not what we do here. And that is not true because the passive aggressiveness on the roads proved that to be different. Um, I saw grown men weeping when Stefan Diggs caught a touchdown pass that brought us to the NFC championship last year. I know that if, if, the, if our passions are stirred up, we weep, we cry. We rejoice. We raise our arms. We celebrate. We're emotional people. We just have a hard time expressing it here, perhaps, in Minnesota. But when I, when I think of this, what helps me a little bit is I have, I have three boys. We've got a fourth boy coming next month, Lord willing. Um, my wife would say even the end of this month would be okay, too. Um, I have three boys, and I love my boys, more than words I can, I can't even put the words to it sometimes. My heart explodes in, in my love for my children. I just love them like crazy. What if I never express that physically? No smiles, <laughs> no hugs, no kisses, no tossing in the air, no snuggles on the couch, nothing like that. Just stone-faced declarations of my love to them without a smile on my face. I love you. We're not wired that way. That is not how God has made us. It is so normal to engage physically when our affections are stirred up. That is the normal thing that we do as human beings. So why, why would my worshiping of God not stir up my, my body in some way to, to worship him, to glorify him, to love him? So that's normal. I think the normal thing to do is to engage emotionally and physically as well as intellectually, in every way, in every bit of our being, we worship God. And so I'm just, what I'm trying to do is just encourage you in that. 
I'm not heavy-handed in that or anything like that. I, I just desire to see um, you filled with the Spirit and, and um, to not quench the Spirit, not to push those emotions down, but let, but let the Spirit minister to you. And he's stirring up praise all the time. And so when you feel it, you go for it. And when you don't feel it, you go for it in hopes that you will. And that'll, um, it just keeps us, I think, from quenching the Spirit. Um, I'm not, I got to say this too, I'm not promoting emotionalism or something like that. I, I don't care. To, that's not the point. The point is to be stirred up well. Let the Spirit do what the Spirit does in us and engage physically, emotionally, all those things as we worship the Lord. You know, the opposite of quenching the, the fire would be to fan flame into it. Second Timothy talks about that. Paul tells Timothy to fan uh, fan into flame the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given to you through the laying on of my hands. A small fire can get big fast with some wind, with some breeze. And so we want to be a people who fan into flame this gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For Timothy, that had to do with, with um, stepping out in boldness and not being ashamed of Jesus. That was Timothy's kind of immediate command. Just be bold. Step out in faith. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of his gospel. <clears throat> that could be for you. Monday morning, tomorrow, wherever you're going. Don't be ashamed. Fan into flame the gift. You can fan the flame of the Spirit in your life by holding on to God's word and, and reading it and memorizing it and loving it, loving Jesus in that. You can fan the flame by praying and fasting. You can fan the flame by, like I said, fully engaging when we gather on Sunday morning. You can you can fan the flame by opening up your home to, to unbelievers and, and, and having a meal with them and loving them in Jesus' name. You can, that fans the flame of the Spirit in your life. You can fan it by acknowledging your sin and confessing it to, to someone. That, that fans the flame. The list can go, you get the idea, the list can go on and on, but fan the flame of the Spirit in your life rather than quench it. That's what we're called to, very simply. And God has given us um, a, a choice in the matter essentially, a choice in the matter. Don't quench the spirit, but fan into flame the spirit. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am uh, have, have so often um, uh, confessed to you some of the same things, Lord, and I know that that I, I quench your spirit in ways that I don't realize so many times. I thank you for your grace there. Thank you for your instruction. I know, God, as a church, there's many of us who, who are we, we just do, Lord. We, we quench your spirit for a variety of reasons. And so we just openly confess that to you. We don't want to live lives of constantly quenching your spirit. We want to be open to change. We want to be open to, um, uh, to your spirit's work in our lives. And so please help us to be a people who... Um, who do not quench your spirit, God, but are eager to fan into flame the spirit that has been given to us um, through Christ Jesus. And so uh, help us in this, Lord. Um, we, we, we know that this is, this is good, this comes from you, um, but we do recognize and acknowledge that we need uh, help in all of this, Lord. And so where we're confused, bring, us, bring clarity, God. Where we uh, are discouraged, God, I pray that you'd bring encouragement. Um, and I do just pray, Lord, that we would be a church, a people, God, who, who really flourish in the Holy Spirit here and really take seriously the Spirit's work in our lives. And um, we just we trust you for that, God. We, we ask it in, uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.